Pod Pals, and welcome back to Best Girl Grip. I'm your host, Nicole Davis, and this is the podcast that navigates the film industry through the lens of the women doing just that. When I started this podcast in 2019, it was with the intent to dig into all the different jobs that exist in and relate to the world of film, and to figure out why they exist and what their function is. And it was around this time, if not a bit earlier, that the role of the intimacy coordinator was picking up traction, you know, becoming more prominent. And I knew then that I wanted to speak to one, but I also felt that it was something that was being talked about a lot. And so I sort of held off just to see where the conversation went or would go and how that role might evolve. All of which is to say I have finally gone around to having an IC on BGG and I'm really glad I waited actually because I think this discussion is an all-timer and my guest certainly is one. I spoke to Adelaide Waldrop, a certified intimacy director with Intimacy for Stage and Screen, where she trained with Lizzie Talbot and Yarrett Dorr, and prior to that she was part of Eater O'Brien's company. She also serves as the secretary of the Intimacy Coordinators branch of Bechtu and teaches intimacy for performance at Lambda. Speaking of which, Adelaide graduated from Lambda's MA in Directing programme in 2017. She has directed productions in the UK and America and is the co-founder and co-artistic director of Devise Theatre Company, Maud. Her credits as an intimacy coordinator include Kibaway Tavara's upcoming film The Kitchen, Jack Rook's TV series Big Boys, Charlotte Wells' directorial debut After Some, BBC drama Then Barbara Met Allen, written by Jack Thorne and Genevieve Barr, and a recent series created by Nicole Leckie called Mood. We talk about drama school, how directing a production of Spring Awakening at 19 provided a first taste of coordinating intimacy, how establishing the necessity of having an intimacy coordinator on certain sets was at times difficult, choreographing non-sexual intimacy such as the father-daughter relationship between Paul Meskel and Frankie Corio in upcoming movie release and Can Darling after some, the kind of persona Adelaide embodies in order to do her job well, how she holds space for actors to admit discomfort, and pushing the industry forward to be more representative and inclusive in its depictions of sex. The fact that there are still actors who denounce the need for safeguarding and choreography when it comes to sex scenes or any scene of an intimate nature I think underscores the need for these kinds of conversations and I am beyond thankful to Adelaide for having this one with me. I hope you enjoy listening. This is episode 117 of Best Girl Grip. I usually start in the realm of higher education and university or college as it's known in America, just because I think that's where we first get a sense or are forced into picking maybe something that we want to do. Uh, Mm -hmm. So did you go to university or college? And if so, what did you study there? I did indeed. I went to uni, actually, so British. Uh, I went to the University of St. Andrews, and I have a degree in Latin and English. Ooh, why did you choose Latin and English? <laughs> I love Latin, because I'm a big <laughs> nerd. Um, and I was very, very privileged to have parents who both did degrees that were in things other than what they they chose to pursue career-wise. So there was no, what are you going to do with a Latin degree uh, kind of question from them. Um, but I also went to St. Andrews knowing that it had a, a really robust student theater community and with eyes on taking stuff to the fringe. So I did do my degree in Latin, but I spent a lot of time in theater. <laughs> so like the creative industries and creative pursuits were kind of known to you already and you maybe had an eye on them. 
Yeah, exactly. So I'd, I'd grown up acting as a child from when I was about eight in a sort of hippy dippy theater company, um, uh, back home. And, and I'd, I'd sort of questioned pursuing more of a, like an undergrad degree in theater, looked at schools in the States where I could have sort of like a classics major, again, focused on the ever, ever present Latin, but, uh, <laughs> with like a theater minor or something, but ended up going to St. Andrews and actually, while I was there found directing. So started directing theater and musicals, um, at university. So yeah, very much, very much had it in, in my mind at 17, but wasn't sure that I wanted to put all of my eggs in that basket. And when you graduated and had kind of manifested or begin to think about maybe doing directing as a career, how did you go about pursuing that? Or did you think that that was realistic or not? Realistic? Oh, realistic. Yeah. <laughs> question. Um, well, so I actually, what I, what I left undergrad with was, was my best friend and theater partner, Brendan McDonald. And the plan when I graduated was for us to start a devised theater company together. So he's Canadian and British. I'm American. One of us was going to have to get a visa somewhere <laughs> in order to like work together. So I, I went back to DC where I'm from and was working with some devised theater companies there, you know, working like five jobs, like restaurants, bars, retail, sign painting, everything so that I could afford my theater habit and then applied for drama school to come back to the UK so that Brendan and I could be back in the same place to work towards a company. And that's when I, I sort of pursued directing. I directed a bit in DC, but was mostly more learning about like collaborative forms of creation more. And then, yeah, came back to, to the UK in 2016 and got my master's in directing at Lambda then sent my, my claws in to try and stay in this country um, so that I could make my little device theater company. And why Lambda? What drew you to that institution in particular and, and that course? Yeah. I mean, to be perfectly frank, I was looking at a lot of other courses. I was looking at things like, uh, more, more about like collaborative devised work, things like Rada's MA theater lab or Central's advanced MA in theater practice, things that felt like they wouldn't pigeonhole me into one thing. It's that, that funny thing where when you say you're, when you've grown up acting and then you say you're a director, people are like, oh, so you're not an actor anymore. Whereas when the other, when it happens the other way, you're allowed to be both. Yeah. Um, I don't know why that is, but I was very scared of like, losing my, yeah, losing my performance side. So I wasn't actually intending to apply to the MA directing program. And to be perfectly honest, I missed the deadline for the RADA course. And I was so mad at myself <laughs> because, well, you know, when you, when you do performance and especially in the UK, there's this like drama school is the thing. And so it felt like I hadn't applied as an actor ever, which was sort of a safer thing than trying and failing. <laughs> <laughs> like so stupid because you you make zero percent of the shots you don't take but you know like anyway so so I'd put it off and and miss the deadline and then I was like whatever ah, I'm just gonna have to apply for something and I applied for the directing program and actually as I, what was really good about it is that I I was 25 I had already done some work I already knew what kind of work I wanted to do as an artist and so I I kind of took the whole audition process in the best sort of way where I was kind of auditioning the course whilst they were interviewing and auditioning me, I was kind of like, well, tell me about this program. Like, is this a right fit for me? I'm interested in this sort of thing. This is my approach to directing. Like, what do you, what do you think feel? And it ended up being the best possible course I could have done way better than the other ones I was considering simply because 
you're allowed, you're, you're in the training with the actors for the whole first term. And then what you do is you, you assist on projects, you assist on plays and short films and work with other directors. And then you have your own sort of coursework within there. You, we do a devised piece, which I was like, Ooh, uh, very excited about. Um, but then you have one final showcase piece. And it meant that I was able to continue to sort of like, explore and study theater practices that I was really drawn to before Lambda, like movement. And also that I was, yeah, able to like learn and collaborate with a bunch of different artists in a way that actually helped me exercise more of my creative muscles beyond just the sort of director in the director's chair. It was much more, we were treated more like grad students, I guess is the best way to, to put it. And, and yeah, very, very grateful for it. And presumably that dialogue and proximity to actors has now come in very handy with intimacy coordination. Not that you would have known it then, but like that must be such a big part of what you do. It's huge. It's huge. And I think also it's about as a director, I created my own approach based on what I wanted and needed as an actor and what I found rewarding in my my creative sort of experiences that way. I try to be a director that that other actors want to collaborate with. But what was really exciting was being in other people's directing rooms because I never came to directing because I was like, I think I'm going to be very good at this. I came to it because, you know, other people were putting on shows at my uni and I was like, why are you, why have you chosen that play? <laughs> no female roles when you've got a lot of, of a large, like a female dominant uh, theater community. And then also like, why are you directing it like that? And I think it's an interesting thing to sort of to have that that experience, to get to be in that room with another director and and a room full of artists and see how they're doing things and kind of have, you know, be a participant and be active, but also have that little commentary in the back of your head of like, ooh, why do they do that? Or like, mm, maybe I would do that differently. Or I would never have thought of doing it that way. And now we're here and like, that's exciting. But you certainly do see a lot of practice as well that I was like, hmm, hmm. Um, yeah, it's helpful, isn't it? Because it makes it, it kind of makes you realize you have a voice if you have a reaction to how someone else is doing something. You're like, huh, like, I wouldn't do it like that. So therefore, there is a way that I would, I don't know, I think it's, yeah, it's totally helpful. Completely, you kind of like, uh, figure out who you are in reaction, like, not that that sounds so negative. But it's more that for me, anyway, there's I have greater confidence in a, in a sort of reactive place than a solely generative one, which is why I'm interested in collaboration, I suppose, because I'm always like, I don't want to like, I don't, I don't feel like ideas that the sort of lone inventor mythology doesn't really work for me that I like sat in a room all by yourself. And then it's like, aha, I'm very much into responding and reacting. And I think that's so much of what storytelling is on screen or on stage is, is listening, responding, reacting and and I mentioned there that obviously the the directing training that you did must have helped with intimacy coordination. But I'm assuming also that the intimacy coordination work that you do now will then also facilitate the kind of directing work. And I wonder if that's still, as you said, like you, when you moved into directing, you still had this desire to be an actor or, or that was still kind of some part of you. It's not like you lose that, yeah, that ambition just because you've moved into a diff different phase. So I'm wondering if that still exists, even though you're an intimacy coordinator if wanting to direct still exists and whether you still approach yeah. the intimacy work with the view to directing? Well, completely. I mean, I think that it would be foolish for me to sort of pretend like I don't have experiences and skill sets that I do, um, particularly with, with intimacy, because my first interaction with intimate performance was as an actor. My first kiss was in a theater rehearsal. I'm not the only one who's got that. <laughs> 
my second kiss was in that same rehearsal and somebody going, okay, do it again. And I'm going to say one Mississippi, two Mississippi. (laughs) I know, right? At 14, teenager, like, oh God. And you know, that, well, my first experience with, with choreographing intimacy was as a director when I was 19. I did, um, I directed a production of Spring Awakening at St. Andrews. I didn't set out to kind of have have quite so much sex to deal with in the in my second ever show I directed but it was with my theater partner Brendan he was musical director and and I came into that production very much like knowing knowing the experiences I'd had as an actor where I'd felt like the classic you know just go for it direction had been thrown at us and you just kind of you don't know what to do and you don't have the time or space facilitated to talk with your scene partner and you're like just pushing vaguely as hard as you're, you can without feeling like you're totally at risk. So I didn't want my actors at 19, a 19 year old directing two 18 year olds. I didn't want them to feel that way. And also it's essential to the storytelling. There's this sex scene that comes at the middle of the musical that for those who aren't familiar with it is just set in the 19th century in Germany. And these kids basically are given no sex education formally anyway. And so there's this sex scene that happens where one character knows what sex is and the other doesn't. And so there's a question of how much she is able to consent at all, because, you know, in order to consent to something, you need to know what it is you're consenting to. And so it's this pivotal sex scene that happens. And, you know, the, the sort of main arc of the drama rests on that, on that vague moment of consent. So I knew from a directorial standpoint, it needed to be really specific. It needed to be very clear when she's that sort of nuance of, of, uh, unspoken communication and sort of spoken communication between the two of them. So I spent a whole day with these two actors. I spent like 10 out, not 10 hours. That's a long time, but like it felt it was a full day's rehearsal that we had just the three of us working through the choreography very specifically. But I remember thinking at that time being like, I don't know how to do this. Like I, I know that I want it to be something they feel really confident and, and clear about that it needs to be repeatable. It needs to look right for the story and that they need to be happy with what they're performing and what they're revealing. But I remember sort of being like, okay, I don't know how he's going to pull his trousers down in a way that looks like he's nude, but he's not. I don't know what he's meant to wear underneath his trousers. And, and having the thought at 19, like it is odd as a director that if you have a waltz, you have a choreographer come in because you're not expected to know how to waltz, let alone teach others. If you have a fight, you have a fight director come in. And I remember being like, this is odd that I'm expected to know how to do this. And I, I did my best and I, I, I learned a lot with that show. And then the next show I did was hair. And then uh, the first part of angels in America. So by the time I was 21, I had as a director dealt with full frontal nudity, including genitalia, simulated sex of all varieties not all but many varieties and simulated self-stimulation all sorts of things um so so when i when i finally sort of became aware of the world of intimacy and the sort of intimate work i was very much like go on i came to the work from from the place of a director where i was like this is something i needed and didn't have but when i work with directors i i also am very aware that every director has a different relationship to the space they've had to hold with this work. It's not just about protecting the actors. It's about being in service of the whole production, including the director, because I've had directors say to me like, Oh my gosh, thank God. I have always hated working on these scenes. I don't know what to do. I feel like I'm supposed to know what to do. It's terrifying. Thank God that you're here. Cause now I can just 
you can just say the notes that I don't want to have to give to my actors directly. And I'm like, yes, I'm here. This is great. So it all, it all feeds into one another and informs one another. My experience as a performer, my experience as a director and yeah. And, and with intimacy, it's certainly been an education that I've been very grateful to have because consent comes into every aspect of life, but in a creative world as well. And I teach at my old drama school at Lambda. Now I teach intimacy for performance and, and running a consent based space is a huge, is, is a real um, renegotiation of a lot of the ways that, that creative spaces have been run previously. So I'm, I'm very grateful to have a more nuanced understanding of that across the board. And speaking of education, how did you go about training in this role? Was it kind of onset practice, like almost like an apprenticeship or were you doing like a more theory based course? I sort of was introduced to this work in 2017. A practitioner who became the first intimacy coordinator in the UK came and taught us at Lambda, was teaching um, Laban movement and mentioned that she was starting this work. And so I I kind of went, um, yes, may I please, I would like to talk to you about that. <laughs> so I started training with her in fall of 2018, right before she became the first intimacy coordinator on set. And so in my sort of introduction to this industry, I was there kind of closer to the beginning in the UK, certainly, where where I was able to kind of see the practitioners who were just starting to explore this work and just mm. like building their own practices and kind of developing that space. And then also being American, I was back in the States from time to time and was able to kind of meet with first ever intimacy coordinator, Alicia Rodas, as well as um, in LA, I had, had a coffee with Amanda Blumenthal, who was you know, figuring out her own practice on Euphoria, which was filming at the time. So, the, and then there's and then there's practitioners who've been doing this for much longer in the states. Tonya Cena, who founded Intimacy Directors International, along with um, Alicia and another practitioner. She she's been exploring this for theater since I think 2008 for a very long time. And there's other practitioners as well. I could go on for a whole a whole bit, but um, I was very keen to kind of get as much training from as many directions as possible. I like to sort of draw on a lot of different practices as a as a director and as a as a theater divisor and all of that. So I studied with Ida for a while in twenty like twenty seventeen, uh, and then in twenty nineteen I did some training back in the states, and then also came back and did a full certification course with what is now called Intimacy for Stage and Screen, mm-hmm. and that course was run by Yarit Dor and Lizzie Talbot and Enrique Ortuño, and so I I got a full sort of start to finish certification program. But at that point, I'd already been training in, in a few different methodologies. So I had, I had some awareness. And certification is not necessarily the only way to go about it. There's some basic agreements that the industry has of like what you need to have in order to do this work. I think everyone agrees that you need to have some kind of capacity or training movement of some kind, any kind, because it is a choreographical role. Like we do we safeguard scenes and make sure that they're protected and everyone feels safe, but we're not mental health professionals. And we are there to also make sure that they look good and are convincing and believable. And in order to do that, you need to have an understanding of how bodies move and how you tell stories through movement. So everyone kind of agrees you need a background in movement. Uh, There's all sorts of health and safety things you should have like mental health, first aid, trauma awareness, LGBTQIA plus training, uh, implicit bias training, those sorts of things. But then also, you know, especially the the difference between 
so I started training with intimacy for stage and screen in 2019. And that was the first like full certification program in, in the UK and a really, really thorough one. There's so much learning that's continuing to happen as this industry grows. Like every, every time I'm on a project, I'll do a scene for the first time, like a, a scene that I've never done something of that nature before, you know, and you learn constantly. So I think it's always got to be a continuous learning process. And I think it's essential as well that whether it's an apprenticeship, a mentorship, a certification program, a sort of patchwork of self-study and workshops and whatever, it, it's essential that you are in touch with the, the intimacy community because everyone's experience is part of their learning. And like sharing about those experiences and that learning is is really how we how we grow because it's still in its nascent stages in so many ways. Yeah. I want to know a bit more about that. Like, what was it like for you, as you say, like being on the front line as this this role sort of exploded, like and and seeing people pioneer like how to do it and how to implement it on film sets and in theatres. You know, that must have been quite an exciting time. It was really exciting. It was really exciting. It was tough as well. And I very much like I would say I wasn't on the, the front front line. I was like stood stood behind the people on the front line very grateful for the things that they had to sort of endure and fight for and yeah the how much they paved the way for this work and then and also just like I yeah I, I it's so funny to to think about it because it felt like a real wave because the first so Alicia was on set in spring of 2017 on season two of the deuce with HBO that was the first show to have somebody officially called an intimacy coordinator on it and then in October I guess the Weinstein scandal broke mm-hmm. and the Me Too movement kind of just took off. And so this became a part of that conversation. And I think in some ways this work got tangled up in that kind of Me Too movement. And so the first jobs I would work on, it was you'd, you'd find a, a wide range of reactions. Some people who are hugely grateful for the work and more or less understand it and are like, my God why has this not existed before? I hear that all the time. Like, I can't believe that this wasn't a thing until recently. And then you'd get people who were very, very wary of it and very, I think, scared that it would hamper the creativity or that that I would come in and just tell them all the things they couldn't do. And so there's a lot of pressure, especially early on, every time you were on set or in a rehearsal space, but especially on set. I think theater people are a little more not theater people, but like the theater world is much more accustomed to, yeah, just having, having different specialists come in and like run the space for a bit. There isn't this kind of like time is money, money is time. Like, why are you here? Why is there one more thing on my list? That's much more TV film, but people, yeah. Every time I'd be on set, especially I would feel this pressure of like being somebody's first interaction with an intimacy coordinator and at most at back then, mostly everyone's first interaction. And so you are, you are aware that you are having to kind of prove the necessity of the role whilst doing your job. And that if you mess up or you have a bad day, that might taint their impression of the role moving forward and hurt the industry moving forward. And it means that early on, I think, especially like, you know, you are learning. It is trial by fire. Like my I was very, very lucky again. Like I, I think in my career, especially I've I've had roles I've had jobs that that really sort of slowly scaffolded and built up in terms of what they were. I worked on some music videos and some short films first. And then when I had my first sort of bigger on-screen IC job, it was a first kiss. So there was no nudity. There was no simulated sex. Like it was something where I could like put the practice in, but didn't, wasn't dealing with as many logistics. And, and also I was very, very grateful because by that time I was training with 
yard and Lizzie and I had, I had people on call on the day where I could be like, hi, okay, so this has happened and that's happened. And like, what do I do about this? And what do I do about that? Or even things like I'm in the, AD, like somebody's told me to go to the AD trailer. What is that? <laughs> you know, what does 10 one mean? All of these things that you can, you can read about or learn about on your own. But once you're in it, it is still, a, you know, steep learning curve. But no, it's, it's, it's changed since then in that people are more, the, the role is more sort of commonly accepted. But even so, I'm constantly having to kind of explain and, and justify, not always because people are suspicious of it out of, w- with no basis, but also, you know, every intimacy coordinator is different. And some people's methodologies work better with certain actors or certain directors than others. So sometimes I come into a job now where they've worked with an intimacy coordinator before and gotten one impression. And I'm like, oh, well, I work this way. And they're like, oh, it's all, it's still a bit of a negotiation of expectations um, in terms of what I do and don't do. For sure. I hadn't, yeah, really considered that. Like, I guess the burden of proof that it's a necessity rather than a luxury. Yeah. And what, what it's, what it's for as well. Like what scenes we're needed for versus not everyone's, everyone's got a different assumption on what's intimate and what's vulnerable. Mm. Well, let's get into that, like with the view to detangling, like what profession is and what provisions you're there to offer. And you mentioned earlier some of like the more hard skills that maybe you're required to have, you know, such as a basis in movement and choreography. I'm wondering what kind of soft skills you bring to the role, you know, in terms of what vibe, like how do you approach it? Like what kind of person are you in order to be a good intimacy coordinator? So I I will speak for my own sort of learning and journey and all of that. I think that for me, my, my number one, I guess they've got two, two things that, that exist. I, I would say on the top of the list, both at number one, one is empathy and one is flexibility. Empathy being sort of not just an ability to and an awareness of what other people's experiences are or might be. And just sort of a, but, but, but even, even sort of, I am, I am a child of hippies, so I am going to get all, you know, it's fine. I won't hear people rolling their eyes, basically like an energetic listening, a kind of, um, I, I talk about turning the sort of dial on my empathy knob all the way up to 11 when I'm on set, because you are trying to kind of tune in to everyone's needs and everyone's energies. Like if an actor's feeling quite frenetic or nervous that day, like they might not say to you, I'm feeling really nervous today, but you can tell because they're, you know, focusing on this thing or they're really worried about that thing or, and you kind of get a vibe of every member of crew. And with that empathetic listening, you just, you really absorb as much information as you can from those around you and then kind of adapt and flex and sort of change shape to fit what everyone needs from you that day. And obviously there are people whose needs have to take precedence because they're in a greater place of vulnerability like the actors or the performers. But, but yeah, those are, those are soft skills that I, I really, I mean, to be perfectly frank, being raised as a woman, I think you, you as a woman or a queer person or whatever kind of identity marker might lead you to have to learn how to listen to other people's unspoken feelings and anticipate needs from a young age. I feel like I've had that muscle for a long time, but it's certainly, it's about being very quick to read a situation and to read a room and to adapt your approach accordingly. Because I, I treat my work like a tool and it's only good if people use it. Mm-hmm. So if I come in and I plunk down this, like, this is my practice, like take it or leave it. Like it's a consent-based practice. If I shove it down people's throats, that wouldn't make me a very good consent-based practitioner. Mm-hmm. But of course there are also boundaries that, that are hard boundaries, including my own. 
And that can be a really tricky one to to navigate. Like it's very clear to me when an actor says no or says maybe, which I treat as a no until it's a clear and present yes, right? Like when when I've got an actor's boundary that's like, I don't want to do this. I'm like, great, say no more. And I go and I defend that. But when a production is perhaps asking something of me that I'm a bit more like, mm, mm, I am constantly practicing the soft skill, but also very real skill of learning when I say no because I don't feel, because it compromises my practice or my professional boundaries. So that's a soft skill I'm working on. But beyond that as well, you know, I think all of the, all of the theater background, the directing, the acting, the devising, all of that movement, done a lot of different types of movement theater, those all really help. But with TV and film in particular, I think that one of the experiences I have that has most informed and helped me in working on set is working in bars and restaurants, to be perfectly honest. I think the pace is similar. I think the long hours and the kind of cowboy mentality is similar. Yeah. Certainly working with a certain type of chef is not dissimilar to working to certain types of food. <laughs> and, but it is, you know, I come in in a service role. I'm there to provide a service to the production and the actors and everyone involved. And so it, and it, and it runs like a, like a shift. You're on your feet the whole time. You're moving from thing to thing. You're having to keep several things in your head at once and listen when somebody asks for something new and move and prioritize things in certain orders. So not saying everyone who wants to work in TV and film should go work in a restaurant. Probably will have anyway <laughs> at some point. But yeah, I think those soft skills that I, I learned in the service industry have come very, very like surprisingly in handy on set. You touched on your own professional boundaries there. And as much as you feel comfortable talking, is that to do with representation of intimacy? Is that to do with like technical things that people might be asking of you? It's several things. I think representation is a really, it's a really tricky question because so I, I said that I sort of hold on to all of my experiences when I'm on set, like as a director and an actor and all of that, but I very much for my own sake, like put on one hat and take off another. Right. So I'm never on set as a director. Uh, and I kind of, you know, I, I kind of keep that part of myself a little more held back because sometimes directors don't like knowing that somebody else who is a director is on set watching them. So I kind of only only offer that when when people ask or need to know. But in terms of the representation, it's tricky because that that happens at, at many stages. It happens at the point of writing and how a writer writes a sex scene and then how that's interpreted by the actors and the director and me. And I will always, I sort of try to offer what we describe as sort of sexual dramaturgy. So if I'm on a project that wants some creative input from me, or I do some research, like I might, or it can be small things. Like if I work on a scene where two teenagers are having, teenage characters are having sex in the story, I might offer that we see a condom opened in some form. Sometimes people are like, whoa, whoa, let's not get out of hand. And I'm like, okay, just an offer from your friendly, you know, things like lube, like we never see lube and my God. And, and I, I think there is a, there's an obviously overtly, I think it, I think it's like covert, but I think it's an overtly political part of me that, that feels like as much as I can, there's all of the advocacy that comes with this role from in terms of consent and mitigating against abuses of power and all sorts of things. But then also in the storytelling side of it, you know, until we live in a world where sex education is freely accessible and comprehensive and uh, inclusive and intersectional and all of these things, you know, I certainly got a lot of information about sex from what I saw in TV and film. And I had some good sex education, you know, like I had parents who talked to me about stuff, but still you watch a sex scene where, 
you know, a, a character with a vagina is like thrown up against a wall. And then in three seconds, she's had an orgasm and there's been no clitoral stimulation. And then you become a sexually active person and you're like, huh, doesn't work that way for me. I'm broken and you're not. It's that somebody's just told two actors to go for it. And, you know, 12, 13, 14 year old you has been like, oh, that's normal. So I think I, I do try it's, it's hard because it's not necessarily a boundary so much as me caring about the work and wanting my work to be good. So I, I can only make offers, but I do try and offer wherever I can things that feel more representative and also just more interesting. Like, I think we're all a bit bored with your kind of bog standard straight sex scene where everyone has a miraculous orgasm that just comes out of nowhere. And then yeah. it pumps and go and you're like, yeah. I mean, is that's how it works for everyone, right? <laughs> no. And and within that as well, I think I do think on the other on the other side of that, like there are certain things where if a representation feels particularly exploitative or dangerous in its implications, you know, scenes of sexual violence or scenes of a sexual violence particularly that involve uh queer folks, so trans but, you know, gender non-conforming or just queer people. Um, I feel much more strongly about voicing my my opinion as something where I think there's a responsibility there. So it's sort of that that's something I I touch in on. But professional boundaries wise, sometimes it's just about last minute changes where I'm like, you can't you can't move a sex scene to tomorrow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and it's the actor's boundaries for sure. If you're a SAG after actor, if you have that contract, they can't you 48 hours notice needs to be given for any changes that are made. And often I'm on contracts that might have a fantastic agent who negotiates wonderful things like the same thing for me that changes can't be made more than 48 hours in advance, less than 48 hours in advance. But then of course they happen. And sometimes the actors are like, yeah, it's fine. I don't really mind. And the production are like, it has to be tomorrow because this and that and weather and this and that. And I'll sit there and I'll go, okay. Do I feel comfortable doing it tomorrow? Do I feel comfortable having like, you know, going and doing the scene when we were meant to have a rehearsal and now we don't like it's professional boundaries like that as to whether or not I feel like I'm being given all the resources I need to do my best work. I I always, I'm such a hypocrite. I always advocate with people for saying no and that no is a full sentence, but it's hard. It's hard. It's really hard to say no. You'd be like, no, that's it. No explanation, no apology. You just say no and leave it. So I'm constantly working on that. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. I love the way you put that as well. No, it's a full sentence. <laughs> about defining the role, because obviously, as as we touched upon, there are very many different kinds of intimacy. And with each production, there must be different requirements of you. And also a director might come to you saying, yeah, we've got this, this and this sex scene. This is what we want you to work on. But you read the script and actually there's more intimacy. And, and maybe you have to advocate for kind of working across a broader range of scenes than they'd initially come to you for. So, yeah. How do you go about having that conversation and deciding what you're going to be involved in? Wow, that's, I mean, you're completely right. That is exactly what happens almost every project I work on. Because, yeah, what, what is or isn't considered intimate is very subjective. And then also you've got all of the interpretation that comes along with it that might change what a scene is or isn't. So what I do whenever I start on a project is I get the scripts through and I do an intimacy breakdown. So mm-hmm. I pull out every moment of intimacy that I see from, you know, full nudity, full simulated sex scene, through to familial intimacy. So kisses on the cheek, a child being picked up and cuddled, uh, familial intimacy between adults even, I will just put it down so that we've acknowledged that there's like kisses on the cheeks happening between a, you know, an adult 
actor and somebody playing his mother or whatever. I'll flag it all. I'll write it all down in the spreadsheet. And then I'll do sort of assessments as to whether or not it requires an intimacy coordinator be on set, requires a closed set, or if it's something where an IC is optional or like recommended. So my sort of standard thing with productions is anything that requires a closed set requires an intimacy coordinator present on set. One of the things we do is we work with the the first AD to ensure that the closed set is maintained and that the actors are clear as to who's on set and why, who has access to monitors and why, you know, that I work with costume to make sure that cover-ups are provided, you know, just that's the coordinating part of it where I'm just working with other departments to make sure that's held well. So things that require a closed set will be nudity and simulated sex. Um, And then, you know, there's other things that are kind of closed-ish sets, depending. So that's the sort of the basic bare bones level. But even within that, nudity is quite subjective. So I treat nudity above the waist as nudity, regardless of the gender identity of the performer, which is very confusing sometimes to productions because they're like, oh, he's just shirtless. Like, what's the big deal? And I'm like, well, he is nude from the waist up, fully nude. And yes, obviously there is a difference. So if I have a cisgendered male actor or just a male actor who's like, nah, I don't care about being shirtless. I don't need you there. Like, thank you for checking in. I'm happy to do that. I'm happy to do it without an IC on set. That's a state of nudity where I'll be like, yeah, fine. But then I've had many male actors who've said, no, I would like you there. Or who actors who who have been heartthrobs and I ask them if they're comfortable being shirtless and they're like, no one has ever asked me that. Thank you so much. So so even within the sort of nudity simulated sex requirement, there's a vagueness there. And and there's assumptions people make about genre that like comedy scenes don't need as much support as a dramatic sex scene or that a scene of manual self-stimulation, as we call it, but masturbation is what I mean, but a scene of that nature like that, oh, well, there's not another actor there. So they don't need a close set. They don't need an intimacy coordinator. And actually that can feel even more vulnerable because you're on your own mm. and without somebody to work with you, you might feel like you're being compelled to perform how you would do that as a person when it really should be grounded in the character and the story. So, so even within that, there's, there's vague bits, but then there's all sorts of things that people don't think of as being intimacy, you know, everything that's romantic, they kind of are like, yes, uh huh. mm." but then things like I've been on set for a scene of childbirth before, or a scene of somebody uh, using the toilet before, which obviously has an implied level of nudity to it, but you might not see anything. Yeah, uh, all sorts. I was, I, I was an intimacy coordinator once for a monster who was on an altar covered in like primordial goo, simulating being put back together by crows. But he was he was naked. The monster was naked. The actor was like in so many prosthetics, but still like exposed. Yeah, exactly. And in this kind of fetal position where he was definitely like, I needed to give him some garments and make sure he was covered. But yeah, I've done all sorts. And I always do. It's always something new. And and with that flagging those with production, it's like, it's not always me coming in and being like, you need to have me on set all the time every day. Like, I don't actually think that's, I think it's just as helpful to identify when I'm not needed. So it's good to kind of to be able to go through that at the earliest stage with productions. Um, so that we don't kind of get into a place where they're like, no, you're here for this day and this day. And and also a lot of it's at actor discretion. It's it's to do with what actors feel vulnerable performing and what they need. Mm-hmm. And that can change, that, that very much changes with each actor and it changes over the course of a production as well. 
you brought up one aspect there that I'm really excited to talk with you about just because it's something I've thought about for a really long time and I still have yet to see it discussed in relation to intimacy coordination where the focus has predominantly been around sex scenes and rightly so but you talk about child actors working with actors who are playing their parents which to me is such a mind-boggling relationship because it's so familiar and the touching although not sexual you know obviously in some stories it might be but it's it's just it's very intimate in ways that I think is must be so hard to like feign and also define boundaries with kids who are quite like wriggly and energetic and might not know where like the blurred lines are as well you worked on um After Sun this film uh that premiered at Cannes this year to great buzz with Paul Meskel um uh Frankie Corey I want to say Frankie Um, oh my gosh and she's so she's so cute she's so amazing and that's that's a parent-child relationship so maybe in the context of working on that film you can talk about yeah how you go about being the intimacy coordinator between a parent and a child characters yeah I mean that was a really really exciting project because most of the intimacy was that I mean there were some some scenes with Paul and and even with Frankie's character where um there's a a kiss that happens and she's oh gosh was Frankie 12 when we did it Uh, but she she had never acted before she was she was cast out of like off Facebook or something. But what was, what was interesting about that project, I was, was basically talking through how, how their relationship, because, because he's a younger father, like how they are quite close and quite physical, but also how the two actors could have a relationship that really built up that trust. Mm. Because the thing with, with working with children, and it really depends on the age of the child actor as well. You know, I've done training the sort of the chaperones branch of Beck too. The, the head of that branch, Arlene, does does sort of training uh, for chaperones, basically. And I did that training so because I've worked with children before on things that have more sort of sinister implications on like a charity piece, but but also just on on familial intimacy. And and when you work with a child like kind of under the age of nine or eight, like they're not fully aware of what's going on. Like they're smart, obviously. And like, they know that they're on a set and they know that they're acting, but it's slightly different approach to working with somebody like Frankie, who's older. And so we talked a lot about giving them a sort of system for, for boundaring the work. So sort of tagging in and tagging out at the beginning of each scene. I talked to, to Paul a lot about how he would check in with her and, and likewise, how, how he would be checked in with, because it's also like, a child actor might not know to check consent with the adult actor as well. And if you're kind of, you know, rolling around in the sea, it's not, it's not so much, I think about, you don't want to come to that, that sort of relationship with this kind of, I don't know, boogeyman, like, Ooh, this is really scary and really high risk. It's more about facilitating a process that's very clear that when you're on camera, it's one type of relationship in terms of the touch and what's expected and what's what the characters are doing. And again, it's really separating the personal body from the professional body. Like when you you tag in, you're in your professional body, you are using that body as a tool for your acting. And then you tag out and now you're back to being, you know, two actors. And so, and, and also it's, it's about them having, they were filming in Turkey. And the funny thing about that job was I wasn't actually in Turkey ever. So I did a lot of remote support and then worked with a fantastic intimacy coordinator Miriam, who uh, was was coming from Denmark. So because of COVID regulations, she could go and I couldn't. Very weird. Um, Miriam Raygard just was such a, it was such a pleasure to sort of 
be able to take a more team approach on that project. So mm-hmm. she was there on set, but like all of the pre-chats about about that were really, really important, I think. And then also trusting that once it was working, it was working that like, you know, that once everyone was kind of getting along and it was got into a rhythm being like, okay, you don't need me like being like, hey, how's it going? And talking as well to like Frankie's parents and, and making sure that she just had support in so many ways. Because yeah, as a child actor, I, I, I'm always in awe. Like I grew up acting, but again, in like very low stakes theater. Well, it was high stakes at the time. <laughs> very high stakes. Um, but but yeah, I, I'm, I'm constantly amazed by all of the things these child actors have to juggle with school and everything. So it's about kind of just making sure that there is a robust form of support all around and that they are aware of the professional nature of what they're doing, as well as their boundaries within that which is just as important for adult actors, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, yeah sometimes more so. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. You get fewer child method actors, that's for sure. Um, and then another credit I would like to talk about is the girlfriend experience, because I know that you worked on the latest series. And that's really intriguing to me, because obviously it's a series that delves into sex work. And I wonder if that changes the nature of your job and also the nature of the sex that you're having to simulate a sex that you're having to choreograph. You know, do you find that you approach it differently because of their professionalism? That's really interesting. I mean, so so the lead intimacy coordinator on that was Yarit Dor. Um, so I, I came onto that project uh, working with Yarit. So that was a really, really great job for me because she's so generous with her time and her knowledge and, and really wanted to empower me to be able to take on that was, that was the first time I did such high exposure intimacy in terms of like nudity of everything except genitalia and like full simulated sex scenes. I think that season is interesting because it was very sci-fi. So the sex work nature of it, she's like a neuroscientist who's trying to figure out the kind of the science of arousal. And so she's it's not necessarily a kind of like leave the money on the table with John's kind of thing the whole time. But I do think that the context of any simulated sex scene really heavily governs how you approach it. And more recently I worked on a project where there one of the lead characters is a trans sex worker and in a country that's like hugely homophobic as well. And, and, and so there's variations definitely in terms of what kind of sex work you're representing and, and how that context informs what you do. I'm also, I've just started on a project that has one of the main characters is a porn actor. And so a lot of it is set on this porn set. And with that, we're working with some essays who are actually from the adult film industry. So, so, which is exciting because that's, it's exciting because it means you have essays who are just more comfortable with the content by its very nature. Not to say that there aren't supporting artists who do a lot of this work quite regularly as well. Uh, without any experience in the adult film industry. But yeah, I think it's it's about knowing how that's going to affect the the emotional context of the scene, perhaps. Like maybe there are more layers of performance in what the sex worker is doing where she's pretending to be aroused and it's maybe a less genuine performance there. But also about kind of, I think, like with anything, like with any sort of scene, being being conscious and aware of the the background of the characters that you're portraying and trying to do justice to that. I'm also wondering, like, have there been any jobs that you found particularly challenging? And obviously you've spoken about the kind of wealth of support within the intimacy coordination community and being able to ring people up and say, what do I do or how do I, you know, move through this moment? Is there a, yeah, a particular experience that comes to mind and, and how do you deal with that if you're on set and kind of having to project confidence? 
Oh, there's so many. And projecting confidence certainly is part of it. It's also staying calm because you're trying to keep other people calm and grounded in terms of things I found really challenging. And this is where it all goes back to me not being a hypocrite as well and making sure that I am taking care of myself so that I'm better equipped to take care of other people, which I am not as good at as I should be or I'd like to be rather. But first one that comes to mind is when I worked on a project that had, well, one of the two leads uh, in a story that was very much about sex. So one of the two leads in this project like was just very, very, it did not have an understanding of my role. And so we had a rehearsal week in which he just, the phrase creatively castrated was used for how my role made him feel. And this was when we hadn't, I, I was trying to introduce him to the work and trying to kind of give him, yeah, just give him an understanding of what it was and what it wasn't. And it was interesting because we had some really great conversations about it and and he wasn't coming at it from like a an intentionally nasty place or anything. He just was like, I just, I feel... I, he'd done many of these scenes, mostly in the eighties. He, he was very much like, I've, I've got a good practice with this. You know, I was kind of like, well, when you're chore- you choreograph a fight, so why wouldn't you choreograph a sex scene? And he was sort of like, well, a fight the is the physicality first and then the emotion follows, but a sex scene, the emotion is first and the physicality follows. And so we had this really interesting sort of back and forth about it. But at the same time, his scene partner wanted these scenes to be very specifically choreographed. She was very clear about that. And I was like, okay, I understand that maybe you're, you want a more sort of improvised vibe, but they were very physically intensive and very one way. And, and so that was a difficult thing because again, like I said, I like to be flexible and I like to work with people's needs and people's, you know, wants and and accommodate their practice best I can. But when one actor's practice comes in conflict with another's, especially another's safety, that's where the line gets drawn very hard. And I'm like, well, well, you do have to actually just do it my way or our way. So that's always, that's challenging. That was challenging because it was just a lot of, a lot of back and forth, a lot of explanation, a lot of frustration. But the other one, the other one that was really tough was just a really chaotic production I was on where things would change last minute. Schedule would change last minute. A director would say they wanted one thing and then, and then want more, want different things on the day. Like last minute changes and poor communication and like indecisiveness until the very last minute is actually the greatest enemy of this work more so than than anything else i've encountered like i'm very aware that this role exists to avoid abuses of power that are especially ones that are more sinister but in my experience it's been disorganization that has been the most dangerous element and so yeah the when i was talking about my professional boundaries before with last minute changes this is where at a certain point it's like i can't I will have to put down boundaries and say, look, you've asked me, like you've added this scene for a character. The actor has said, no, you're upset because you want to use it in this way because you didn't get this other scene because you've got all these holes in your story. That's not my job actually to fix this problem for you. And, and I strive to kind of find creative solutions where it's like, okay, this artist doesn't want to perform a simulated sex scene, but maybe we show the aftermath of this scene instead, or maybe we show it in a different way. And And I really strive, again, to go back to the sort of like collaborative theatre thing to just offer creative solutions. Obviously, with consent itself, it's a sliding scale. It's fluid. You can say yes, but, you know, you're then very able to say no if if something changes and and you no longer want to consent to what's happening. I'm wondering how you hold space for actors on set to have that same openness where you might have choreographed a scene with them and they're happy with it in rehearsal or or when you've discussed it and then on set something changes or they get nervous or whatever happens they suddenly don't feel as comfortable. 
how are you able to then recognize that give them an opportunity to speak up about that and relay that to the director that feels like it might be quite stressful for you to be that intermediary yeah i mean it certainly can be and even when everybody is very respectful of everyone's sort of professional boundaries uh if a change happens and it means that a scene can't be captured in a way and somebody's gotten attached to one thing you know, from any department, it could be costumes attached to some lingerie that an artist is like, no, I don't want to wear that anymore. You know, all these things. It can be hard because, you know, I'll take that information of a changed boundary or changed consent level to them. And then I can see the disappointment or the frustration. But that's where me seeing that I'm like, okay, fine. The actor shouldn't be the one who's seeing that. Mm. Uh, Because that comes into conflict with their ability to freely consent. If it's from a person in a position of power, somebody they want to impress or any of that. I think it's, well, I, I'm constantly checking in with actors and trying to do it in a way that is that straddles that line of being present, but not annoying <laughs> and not disruptive. And so that's, again, that that sort of empathetic listening, like turning that that knob all the way up to 11. So what I do a lot of is, is I mean, I'm always, when I'm on set with, with artists, I am always sort of, I try to be in a place where they can see me. And if they can't see me, let them know where I am. So if I'm on monitor outside of the room or if I'm in the room tucked into a corner, and I will, I will check in very frequently, sometimes, you know, verbally going in and being like, how's everyone doing? Especially since COVID with masks, I do a lot of thumbs up <laughs> and I will, I will say to artists before we're on set together, I'm like, I'm going to give you a thumbs up. If you're good, give me one back. If not, you know, a little wiggle of the hand or a thumbs down, or you can say Adelaide or double tap on your body and I'll come over. And that's sort of just a, a shorthand so that I can give them space whilst they're working. But also if something is going on, they'll tell me. And the option for the double tap or a thumbs up, thumbs down, whatever, a nonverbal acknowledgement as well is important because if you have something that's more high intensity, high risk, or an artist who has a, a past trauma of some kind that in which they might feel triggered, when somebody starts to dissociate or go into a place of like a panic attack or something of that nature, uh, oftentimes the capacity for speech will go very early on. So you want to have nonverbal options for checking in. But also I think, again, it's like, it's just a constant like scaffolded part because I'd I'd like to, uh, you want the consent to be continuous throughout the process so that when the first conversation happens, you're talking about it. When you're in rehearsal, you're talking about it again. When the actor gets to set on the day or gets to base, I'll go check in with them in their trailer one-on-one, talk to them about how they're feeling. So ideally for me, there, there are very few changes that will happen whilst filming not because consent can't change at that point because but because hopefully by then we've built enough of a solid kind of foundation and bedrock of what we know and we've hashed out all the details that that hopefully that stays that way but then also there's things like other boundaries that are to do with how we film something so like how many takes we do Mm-mm. that's a huge thing and to go back to jobs that have been really difficult it's like when i work with actors or actors directors who just like want to shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot. And I have to be like, look, I don't think they have many more in them just because it's like, it's like a crying scene. It's like a, a really physically active stunt. It's like, you can't exhaust your actors or you can, but it's not, maybe isn't going to create the best work, you know? So I think, yeah, that, that's something that in terms of the continuous consent is really important. And you'll be able to tell even without an actor sort of pulling you aside and being like, we need to talk about this. I'll kind of go up and I'll be like, how are we doing? Are you, do you need a break? Do you want like, you know, how many more takes do you think you have in you? And then I'll go and tell the director because 
in a, in an ideal working situation, that's, it's all about making the work better at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And so taking like constantly sort of having that temperature on where the actors are in terms of how they feel it, with their resilience for the performance of the thing is, is important. But yeah, often with changes in consent levels, things like nudity or, or somebody saying, oh yeah, I don't feel like showing this part of my body today, actually. Or, you know, great example is you can talk to actors about actors who menstruate about their cycles and when that might come up and try and ensure that scenes are scheduled around them. But then, you know, that happens whenever, whenever it happens. So <laughs> if, if an artist tells me on the day is like, Ooh, I'm actually menstruating today. And then it's like, okay, well, we'll adjust where hands are going. We'll adjust what clothing they're wearing just to make mm-hmm. sure that they're as comfortable as possible. Yeah, that's so true. And then winding down, I'd love to know if there's like an intimate scene or moment on a project that you've collaborated on that you're particularly proud of, you know, but maybe especially in the way that it represents the intimacy. Yeah, I think there are, there are two that come to mind because also a lot of the stuff I've worked on, I haven't seen yet because it hasn't come out yet. <laughs> so I know, I know stuff I felt very proud of on the day mm-hmm. that I'm very excited to see on camera, but I won't venture to say until I've seen the finished product. Just in case. <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm really excited to see some things that have just been really beautiful and have felt really like they've really told the story well, like all the detail and nuance and richness is there. I had such a fantastic time working on Damage, this Netflix erotic thriller with Charlie Murphy and Richard Armitage. And they are incredible performers. And and yeah, there's a lot of intimacy in that. And like it was just such a collaborative process that I'm really excited to see what the finished product is like, because as an intimacy coordinator, it's kind of like the dream kind of thing where the sex is the story. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the, the sort of two character sexual relationship is part of what's propelling the narrative forward. So, and I was very, very grateful to work with two directors on that, uh, Lisa Barrostaza and Glenn Laybourne, who really involved me in the process as a, as a creative, as well as, as, you know, health and safety role. So I felt very integrated in that project and very attached to that project. Very excited to see it. But no, I I think one that really does come to mind is a BBC project called Then Barbara Met Allen with Ruth Madeley and Arthur Hughes. I worked on that project with another intimacy coordinator as well, Lucy Fennell. But it is about the sort of, it's based on a true story and it's about the the fight for disability rights in the UK. And it is a there's a gorgeous sex scene between these two characters, both of whom have different physical disabilities, but that was so important and felt so special that project, just because I I got to work on a a scene of intimacy that, that I had never seen on camera before. I'd never seen on screen before, you know, and that's when it feels really, really special to feel like you're representing a side of human sexuality that is very present and very real and just completely has been sort of rendered invisible because it's not been shown before. So that was really moving to watch that scene and to see, yeah, just to see it's just a, it's just a sex scene between two people, you know, a couple who have a child and it's complicated because of their relationship and complicated because, you know, of the story of, of where they're at, but it's not complicated or made different by their physical abilities. And it, and it's, so it, it just felt really, really special to collaborate with Ruth and Arthur on that and with Lucy and the directors because, yeah, I, I want to, I really, I can't control the jobs that come up, but in terms of the jobs I enjoy working on and the things that propel me forward in this role, it is about, for me, I'm very, very passionate about representation of human sexuality on screen. We don't see enough fat people on camera, full stop, but certainly not in intimate you know, sexually active roles that aren't 
always comedic. I'm very interested in diversity of racial representation, age to do with sex and sexuality, ability, queerness, gender representation, all of it. I just want more of it because it makes it makes for interesting story, stories, more interesting stories that are more representative. And I think about the sort of 13-year-old me watching these sex scenes on in movies and on TV and just how much wider a breadth there is on on shows now of what young people can see. And I want to continue pushing the boundaries of that as much as I am able to from this collaborative position. I haven't seen that show, so I will definitely check it out after this. I'd love to know if there's a film from a woman's director that you'd like to recommend today. Watermelon Woman is a fantastic uh, film. Also like help, but I'm a cheerleader. I think that as well, but it's not, it's, it's something I'd, well, I'd recommend it because it's a beautiful film, but it's also a terrifying film. But I recently saw Talented Mr. Ripley for the first time. So it's not something I've been coming back to, but I went into it shockingly uninformed as to what the film was, which was, which is kind of nice actually, but it is very, it's a very interesting portrayal of intimacy that doesn't actually have any sex in it, uh, any, any obvious sex. There's sort of like a sex scene between Jude Law and Gwyneth Paltrow's character where they're like on a boat. But Mr. Ripley, Matt Damon's character, I won't spoil the film. It's just that it is, it is much more homoerotic than I was aware of and much more about the sort of intimacy of getting inside people's lives. And so it feels like a very, because he, he's sort of a chameleon and he kind of is sort of manipulates people and, and changes his personality and, and takes on other identities and stuff. I don't think that's a bit of a spoiler, but, but it was an, a very interesting film just to kind of see how, yeah, how intimate, how, how the homoeroticism is done, how the sort of the, the male camaraderie, cause it's set in the forties. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's obvious that, that he's in love with sort of both of these characters, but you don't, you, you get it in glances, you get it in breath, you get it in sort of the positioning of the body and the gaze with the eyes. And in a moment when the sort of arm gets flung around in a very friendly way, it clearly means one thing to another character. And I think that's just a much, it's a very interesting, it's, it's a love story, but, but again, you don't have much sex or nudity in it. And I think I, I'm always interested in projects that do a lot with intimacy, but you don't actually see much because I think the audience imagination is so powerful. Adelaide, thank you so much for speaking with me today. I've wanted to have an intimacy coordinator on the podcast for a really long time. And I'm really glad it was you. This conversation has been so great. Thank you so much. It is absolutely an honor. I'm just so, I've enjoyed the conversation so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Best Girl Grip. If you liked what you heard, please do rate, review and subscribe spread the good word etc i'm on instagram at best girl grip for pod related news if you enjoyed this conversation i have a feeling you'll also like my interview with cinematographer ashley connor in the meantime i'll be back next tuesday with a brand new episode